This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Hello and welcome to Backlisted, the podcast that gives new life to old books. Today, you find us gazing out on the Gulf of Mexico, somewhere below New Orleans in the late 1890s. It's an early evening and the sea whispers, clamors and murmurs as the sun sinks. A tall, slender woman in a faded bathing suit is walking slowly towards the waves. She removes the suit, stands for a moment in the breeze and the fading sunshine, and then walks calmly into the sea's embrace. I'm John Mitchinson, the publisher of Unbound, the platform where readers crowdfund books they really want to read. And I'm Andy Miller, author of The Year of Reading Dangerously. And today we're joined by two guests, one returning and one making their backlisted debut, Tim O'Grady, Rachel Kerr. Hello to you both. Hello. 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 Our new guest is the writer Timothy O'Grady. Tim was born in Chicago, and when he was 22, he migrated to an island off the northwest coast of Ireland. Since then, he's lived in Dublin, London, Valencia, Spain, and Turun, Poland, the city of Copernicus. I just knew that. Oh. I, I, just, I just threw that in. <laughs> he's the author of seven books. His novels are Motherland, I Could Read the Sky, a collaboration with the photographer Steve Pike, and Light. His non-fiction books are Curious Journey, an oral history of the Irish Revolution of 1916-23, on golf and Divine Magnetic Lands, an account of a return journey to the United States after 30 years of living in Europe. His book, Children of Las Vegas, based on interviews with people who grew up in the city, was published by, that's right, Unbound Correct. in 2016. There's a certain theme <laughs> is about to reveal itself today. <laughs> Unbound is also publishing a new edition of I Could Read the Sky, and in 2024, his new novel, Monaghan. Monaghan? Monaghan? Monaghan. And it's Torun, Torun. You got Valencia right. Yeah, I, I Torun, Poland, the city of Copernicus. Mm, Torun, the city of Copernicus, as it will always be known. Monaghan, a collaboration with the artist Anthony Lott, which concerns an IRA sniper who is reinvented himself as a painter. Welcome, Tim. Tim, have you ever met any of the other people around the table today? <laughs> Well, I know John and Rachel for a long time because they were working at Harville when that book you mentioned, I Could Read the Sky, was published. So we go back yeah. a long way, 20-some uh, years, I guess, 25 years, yeah, 26 least. years. Um, at least that. I went to their wedding, um, been to Correct. their home. I saw their little pigs and their bees. <laughs> and um, so we, we go back a long way. They know each I didn't, other. I haven't done any of those things. They really? shut me out. These yeah. bastards. Right. Okay. That's good. I'm pleased to hear that. Well, it's nice of you to let me join you old pals together. Thank you so much. Uh, let's talk about one of the other, one of the gang. Rachel Kerr is a publisher and has worked for Cape, Picador, and Harville and is now editor at large for Unbound. Unbound. She was part of the yeah. Harville team, as we just heard, that published I Could Read the Sky back in 1997 and will be the editor of Monaghan. And this is Rachel's fifth appearance on Batlisted. Thank you, Rachel. She has previously appeared on episodes 44, Charles Frawson's Thoughts of the Blank Masseur, 83, D.H. Lawrence's The Rainbow, 87. <laughs> 87, you came back four episodes later. Wow. Yep. Bruce yeah, Chapman's yeah. Oots. And 140, Dermot Healy's A Goat Song. And despite that, she is still married to John Mitchinson. <laughs> oh, yes, I'm a hardy woman. <laughs> Welcome back, Rach. Amazing, but true. It's lovely to be here again. Anyway, the book we're here to discuss is The Awakening by Kate Chopin, first published in 1899 by Herbert Stone & Co. in Chicago, just two years after they'd published What Maisie Knew by Henry James. 
another great American novel. After causing a great deal of controversy upon publication, the awakening sank below the waves until it was rediscovered by a new generation of readers after the Louisiana State University Press published Chopin's collected works in 1969. Internationally acclaimed as a feminist classic, it was published in the UK in 1978 by the Women's Press and is now both a Penguin and an Oxford classic and a Canongate canon and apparently one of the most popular university set texts in America. We're here to find out why. But before we start sashaying our way through the French Quarter, John, let me ask you the traditional question. What have you been reading this week? Well, I've been reading a book that I think is kind of more or less peak backlisted fan kind of <laughs> fodder. It's just an adorable uh, book called Blurb Your Enthusiasm, an A to Z of Literary Persuasion by Louise Wilder. And Louise worked, uh, has worked and continues to work as a uh, uh, as, as a, a blurb writer, written more than 5,000. She's been a copywriter at Penguin for 25 years, and she reckons she's, over that time, done about 5,000 blurbs. If you're a new listener to Backlist and you've never listened to it before, nearly every episode of Backlisted features us reading out the blurb on the chosen book, whatever edition of the chosen book we have, and trying to judge whether it's a good, bad, or indifferent blurb for the book that we've read. So um, we ought to get, wouldn't it be amazing to get Louise on this to, to cast a professional eye over it? That would be incredible. I think so, because honestly, this, this book, it's, it's five sections. Each of the sections is an individual A to Z. It's nicely structured. But if you're, if you're interested, I mean, you know, we all pick up books, right? Most of what you see and feel and hold and look when you're looking at a book has got nothing to do with the author, really. It's mostly written the words are written by publishers, the, the puffs and the blurbs come in from other people, uh, the, 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 the kind of, the, all the accoutrement that make a book a book is the job of the publisher. And I mean, obviously speaking as a working publisher, of course I'm going to be the target market for this. But I mean, plenty of other people who aren't publishers, Lucy Mangan said, this is the bookiest book about books you'll ever read. And I would <laughs> kind of agree with that. She writes really, really well. It's really funny. It's You wouldn't think there was so much to be said about blurbs, but blurbs are, as she quotes, it's one of my favourite quotes, C. Day-Lewis, the great poet and detective writer, that the sonnet, the detective novel and the blurb are the most extreme and difficult literary forms to master. <laughs> anyway, Ben Yagoda in the New York Times agrees that subtitles are the wallflower at the party. Nobody really notices subtitles. They're a sort of lottery ticket in the economics of non-fiction book marketing. Publishers throw all kinds of elements in them. Vogue words and phrases, features of the book. The title didn't get around to mentioning talismanic locations like An American Life in the almost always vain hope that something will pay off. The literary critic Robert McCrum goes as far as saying that publishers should scrap subtitles, that fig leaf of authorial shame, together following his apoplexy at seeing that a biography, and we've noticed this, Andy, ourselves, uh, mm. that a biography of William Golding featured the subtitle, The Man Who Wrote Lord of the Flies. Yes. I feel his rage. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Uh, somebody once told me that if it's too hard to come up with a good subtitle for a book, the title probably isn't right. And if it's too hard to come up with a good title, the book's probably a dud and the jig is up. Gulp. <laughs> anyway, Harsh. Here's, here's a little piece about the T.S. Eliot and, and blurbs. I wonder how the poet Louis McNeese felt about the blurb that his editor T.S. Eliot wrote for the cover of his early collection poems in 1935. This infamous copy includes the line, his work is intelligible but unpopular and has the pride and modesty and has the pride and modesty of things that endure. I suspect my career might not have endured if I'd been that honest. It's a similar story with Eliot's copy for Robert Graves' The White Goddess, which states, this is a prodigious, monstrous, stupefying, indescribable book. T.S. <laughs> Eliot wrote hundreds of blurbs for Faber and Faber during his time as a publisher there, including works by Ezra Pound, Stephen Spender, Marianne Moore, Ted Hughes. They were often based on his numerous and rather marvellous notes from editorial meetings. Sample. Uncle William is as loony as ever on WOB Yates, which sadly didn't make it to the jacket. According to his Faber colleague, founding director Frank Morley, everyone admitted he was our best blurb writer. Morley continued, blurbs, they're the curse of publishing. They're torture to write. Eliot wrote thousands of them. I can testify from personal knowledge, both of Eliot and of blurb writing, that during his publishing career, he has turned to as, at so many blurbs as to make it quite impossible he should have had time or energy for everything else. But this is Eliot. This is, this is the bit I really love. Eliot described the process thus. 
every publisher who is also an author considers this form of composition more arduous than any other that he practices. If you praise highly, the reviewer may devote a paragraph to revealing the publisher's pretensions. If you try understatement, the reviewer may remark that even the publisher doesn't seem to think much of this book. Yeah, okay. I have had both experiences. Anyway, it's just full of lovely, um, it's some of her favorite blurbs. She dissects blurbs, what makes them good, what makes, there are terrible blurbs in there. Um, there's a wonderful bit of, about uh, uh, the, the man who loves blurbs so much, Roberto Calasso of Adelphi Editions. He wrote all the blurbs for all the Adelphi books. And he calls this classic, you like this, Rachel, because you did his publicity once. Yes, I he do. Takes, he takes a brief glance at the cover flap, hoping for some assistance. And at that moment, without realizing it, he is opening an envelope. Those few lines, external to the text of the book, I like a letter written to a stranger. And she really loves that. And it's a lovely idea. Blurbs, letters mm. written to strangers. And he indeed collected all his blurbs together and published them as a book. Wow, that's some horsepower. <laughs> Called 100 Letters. 100 Letters to a Stranger. And it is literally a book made up of 100 blurbs he wrote over the years for works, including Karen Blixen, Bill and Kudra, Samuel Butler, in no particular order. All right. Anyway, so what fun. is that? Lovely. So what's the, it's what's called, the book called? It's called... Blurb Your Enthusiasm, an A to Z of Literary Persuasion. It was published in September. It is a hardback, a B-format hardback, 1499, published by One World. And it's by Louise Wilder. All right. Your literary stocking filler is solved. Andy, what have you been reading this week? Uh, thanks, John. I have been reading a biography called Beware of the Bull, The Enigmatic Genius of Jake Thackeray by Paul Thompson, who plays live as the Jake Thackeray Project and John Watterson, who plays live as fake Thackeray. And so you've got two tribute artists who've written a biography of the great, great, great Jake Thackeray. If you don't know, for some reason, who Jake Thackeray is, please go back and listen to episode 92 of Backlisted, which we recorded in the Church of St. James in St. Peterport, Guernsey, in the Channel Islands, uh, the venue where... Uh, 34 years earlier, I saw Jake Thackeray play a live concert. I went with my mum. She really hated it. But I can tell you, mum, sorry if you ever listened to this. You were wrong. It was absolutely great. And uh, at the show, uh, at the podcast that we recorded in the same venue, we played some of Jake Thackeray's music out into the room. It was a sort of ghostly and rather special experience for me and I hope for members of the audience as well. He was famously a Yorkshire chansonnier. And uh, to quote our former guest, the writer Andrew Mayle, this lugubrious woolly jumpered raptor of a man, his voice a foggy owlish hoot steeped in dark Yorkshire bitter. He's a folk <laughs> singer, but as, as Paul Thompson and John Watson say repeatedly in this book, he doesn't fit. He doesn't fit any category. He uh, was a school teacher. He idolised people like Jacques Brel and particularly Georges Brasson. He made records for EMI. He appeared regularly on TV. He was prodigiously talented and productive in terms of the number of songs he produced, far more than he actually could record. I think he maybe had, there were five studio LPs, um, the first four on EMI. And uh, he, was, he, was, he recorded for EMI at the same time as another EMI act, the Beatles. And uh, his first LP was recorded in the same week that the Beatles were in Abbey Road working on Magical Mystery Tour in the very same studio, in Studio Two. Uh, and John Lennon met Jake Thackeray and uh, was impressed by his dress sense, telling him, I like your gear, man. More importantly, <laughs> the Beatles liked his songs and guitar playing. Yeah. Paul McCartney later acknowledged Jake's influence on the White Album, recorded in 1968. A lot of it was written in India where we were working with acoustic guitars. That affected the kind of music that was made. John had somehow sneaked in a cassette player, battery operated. He was listening to a lot of folky stuff. He had about half a dozen cassettes with him, of Buddy Holly, an incredible string band tape from Dylan, and a tape the singer Jake Thackeray had done for him. Imagine that. Imagine they go all the way to Rishikesh <laughs> and they're listening to some tape that Thackeray's made them. He was one of the people we bumped into at Abbey Road. John liked his stuff, which he'd heard on television. Lots of wordplay and very suggestive, so very much up John's alley. I was fascinated by his unusual guitar style. And John did Happiness is a Warm Gun, 
as a Jake Thackeray thing at one point, if I recall. So the idea that, that this, this Yorkshire school teacher who, who went offered a record contract by EMI, by Norman Newell at EMI, John, doesn't write back for three weeks because he's busy, because he's marking. <laughs> he's marking papers. Oh, he's going, ah, oh, his ambivalent attitude to being famous is sort of the theme of this book. And what right. I loved about it, if you're not a Jake Thackeray fan when you start reading this book, you certainly will be by the end of it. And you will join the ranks of people like me and Andrew, Neil Gaiman, John Richardson, Keris Matthews, Alex Turner of the Arctic Monkeys. This guy was the real thing. The problem for him was he couldn't quite find an industry that could accommodate what he did because he was a one-off. He, he kind of fits into, he's light, is he light entertainment? Is he a folk singer? Is he a pop singer? What is he? It's one of those perfect stories to me about how creativity and artistic talent flow in ways that cannot always be accommodated by the industry in which they have to be sold. On that level, it's similar for me to Jonathan Coe's wonderful Like a Fiery Elephant uh, about B.S. Johnson. You know, again, someone who doesn't fit, who doesn't fit, whose talent burns very bright, but, 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 but can't be sold easily. Um, anyway, this, is, this book was published by Scratching Shed Publishing, an indie publisher. It's in their, they're in their third reprint of this. It's been a big right. word of mouth success. I thought it was wonderful. It's called Beware right. of the Bull, The Enigmatic Genius of Jake Thackeray. And I would like to, we can't play any of Jake's music for copyright reasons, but I, I can read the lyrics of the title track oh, of his first album, which was called The Last Will and Testament of Jake Thackeray. And I tried this earlier and just thought, oh, this is wonderful. Imagine you didn't know this was a song. And I just, and I was just reading it to you. It's called uh, The Last Will and Testament of Jake Thackeray. Here we go. I, the undermentioned by this document, do declare my true intentions, my last will, my testament. When I turn up my toes, when I rattle my clack, when I agonise, I want no great wet weepings, no tearing of hair, no wringing of hands, no sighs, no lack of days, no woe is me's, and none of your sad adieus. Go, go, go and get the priest, and then go get the booze, boys. <laughs> Death, where is thy victory? Grave, where is thy sting? When I snuff it, bury me quickly, then let carousals begin. But not to do with a few ham sandwiches, a sausage roll or two, and a small port wine, please. Roll the carpet right back. Get cracking with your old gay Gordons and your knees up. Shake it up, live it up, sup it up. Hell of a kind of a time. And if the coppers come around, well, tell them the party's mine. Boys, let best beef be eaten. Fill every empty glass. Let no breast be beaten. Let no tooth be gnashed. Don't bother with a fancy tombstone or a big deal angel or a little copper flower pot. Grow a dog rose in my eyes or a pussy willow, but no forget-me-nots, no epitaphs, no keepsakes. You can let my memory slip. You can say a prayer or two for my soul then, but make it quick. Boys. Lady, if your bosom is heaving, don't waste your bosom on me. Let it heave for a man who's <laughs> breathing, a man who can feel, a man who can see. And to my cronies, you can read my books, you can drive around in my motor car, and you can fish your trout with my fly and tackle. You can play on my guitar and sing my songs, wear my shirts, you can even settle my debts. You can kiss my little missus if she's willing then, but no regrets, boys. Your rosebuds are numbered. Gather them now for rosebuds' sake. And if your hands aren't too encumbered, gather a bud or two for Jake. Oh, that's lovely. <laughs> Brilliant. Lots of Brilliant. fun at Finnegan's Wake. <laughs> <laughs> so that is Beware of the Bull, The Enigmatic Genius of Jake Thackeray. You can listen to his records on YouTube or Spotify. You can read the book. Please buy it. Please read it. Support independent totally... publishing. And the artist against the industry. Do it. Thanks very much. Yeah. Excellent. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. 
You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. Hear that? It's the sound of someone whacking the ground with a rake. Specifically, they're beating around the bush which we've done enough of in this ad, too, so let's get right to it. The new Moneymaker scratch-off from the Ohio Lottery doesn't beat around the bush. Money Maker. Play the game and you could win money, up to $2 million. With more than $88 million in prizes, ranging from $50 to $500, Moneymaker cuts right to the cash. Lottery players are subject to Ohio laws and commission regulations. Play responsibly. The Hargan women seem to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings, wherever you get your podcasts. Back to uh, the main event. The Awakening was Kate Chopin's second novel, and it followed two successful collections of stories, Bayou Folk in 1894 and A Night in Acadie in 1897. The novel's focus is the inner life of Edna Pontellier, a 29-year-old married woman and mother of two boys, whose husband, Léonce, is a New Orleans businessman of Louisiana Creole heritage. The book's notoriety derives from Edna's refusal to accept the role that American society of the late 19th century has allocated to her. Inspired by her deep love of music and of art, repelled by the sacrifices made by her female friends, she finds herself falling in love with one man, Robert Lebrun, who is young and attentive, and committing adultery with another, Alsay Arabin, who is dashing and shallow. It is her refusal to show remorse and to put her husband and children before her own emotional sexual needs that made the book so shocking. Willa Cather called it the Creole Bovary and hoped that Miss Chopin will devote that flexible, iridescent style of hers to a better cause. Male critics lined up to deplore it as gilded dirt that promoted unholy imaginations and unclean desire and condemned Chopin as one more clever writer gone wrong. Yeah, wow. But since the book's rediscovery in the late 1960s, contemporary audiences found it to be a rich, subtle and rewarding novel. And Chopin's reluctance to draw easy conclusions make it even more subversive and powerful. Kate Chopin's book is now seen in its intense interior monologue as a bridge from the naturalistic fiction of the late 19th century to the bold narrative experiments of writers like William Faulkner and Virginia Woolf in the early 20th. And in her vivid portraits of Louisiana, as a precursor to the tradition of Southern writing, which includes Eudora Welty, Flannery O'Connor, and Tennessee Williams. As our go-to guest on American literature, Sarah Churchwell has written recently, The Awakening is not only one of the most important novels in the history of American women's writing, it is an acknowledged American masterpiece. So we should start with our usual question, which I'm going to lob to you, Tim, as you chose The Awakening by Kate Chopin, when were when and where were you when you first read this novel? Well, I was here in the city of Copernicus, as you call it. Um, but I bought it, <laughs> I found it in um, a little bookshop in Dalston called Burley and Fisher. Oh, it yeah. was an edition, yeah. um, Alma Classics, which you didn't mention among the publishers of this yeah. book, but... Uh, they also publish it in a cheap edition. I just saw it on the bookshelf, and I remembered having read uh, a famous story of hers called The Story of an Hour, which I was very taken with because of the boldness of it. And I'd heard about The Awakening, and I bought it, and I took it home and uh, and read it. And read it again, and read it again a third time. In what? In that disbelief? Was did, it, uh, did, it, was it, <laughs> did it grow with every reading? Well, you read it more than once, so that's a good... Well, I think this book is, um, I mean, there's hardly anything more important than what she talks about in this book. You know, it's uh, it's somebody waking up to life. I mean, it was right beside her and she couldn't see it. You know, just like physicists, maybe, maybe Einstein mm. didn't see his theory of relativity until he looked one way and she saw it, she felt it, it came up in her. 
And it's just the primacy of, of life and a discovery of the intensification of life. And I think, you know, it sort of gets past artifice, it gets past ideology, it gets past, uh, you know, sort of prettiness of sentences and structures. I, I think you remember this book, and it's an important book. It has flaws, but it's, it's, it's about something that is um, as important as anything could possibly be. I mean, I can remember feeling maybe like she did when I was a teenager and thinking, is this all there is? You know, you know looking at the world mm. through a kind of uh, mottled glass, everything sort of muted, and then suddenly feeling a dynamism in life. And uh, it's, a, you know, it's a marvelous thing to feel, and I think she conveys this she she makes it the center of this book. It's not just a, a character's trait. It is the subject of the book. And um, I've recommended it to a lot of people because of that. I mean, you know, whether anybody can be awakened by this book is is another thing. I mean, it's it's really, in her case, it's like a wellspring, you know, that seems to come up unexpected. I think it's, it's very, very memorable for the... Uh, you know, for the vital importance of what it talks about. I love that idea. Can could people still be awakened by reading the awakening? With that's the subject we'll return to later in this discussion. I think, Rachel, um, when did you first read either this or or, or other work by Kate Chopin, or, or when did you become aware of her? Well, quite remarkably, given that I did an MA in English and American literature from 1880 to the present day, it never came up on my curriculum. <laughs> Never came up in the reading list. I hadn't heard of it um, until I think it was probably about 2014, and i I was going to uh, I was going to visit New Orleans, and as I'm as I like to do, I looked I looked around for books that were set there. I wanted to read a novel set in New Orleans, um, and I found it. And of course, when I got to New Orleans, I was way too busy to read it. Um, There's much music to be listened to, and many cocktail bars to be visited, and many things to be done. But um, I read it when I got home and I was completely blown away by it because it's one of those books. I mean, uh, as John says, it's, it's evidently like a, a really important book on the, on the university curriculum in, in America, but it, I'm not sure whether it's actually on the, I mean, it may be now, but it certainly wasn't when I was doing my degree, which is a shockingly long time ago, obviously. But um, I was just, I was just blown away by how it it felt to me like um it felt to me very much ahead of its time. Uh, it felt very much more mm. like reading um it felt very much more like reading something written much later and 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 as you said that bridge between between the the 19th century novel and you know Virginia Woolf I mean it felt more like Virginia Woolf than it felt like anything else written in in the late 19th century so that was that was hugely exciting to me and i've read it i've read it several times since because it's just amazing i uh john i i what i like about this novel which i hadn't read before i don't know if you had but i like how it can't be contained by anyone reading so the idea that tim and rachel have both read it several times i i look forward to reading it again because very much an example of a book that we like, the sort that we like on Batmas, where the first reading is just prep for the second reading, which is to consolidate your, your understanding for the third reading. What did you make of it? If this, have you read it before? I could tell you exactly how I was first made aware of it, is, um, uh, and we're going to play a clip from it, is in uh, uh, David Simon's Treme, which is set in his series set in, um, uh, in New Orleans. And uh, there's a lecture in that played by John Goodman, who is teaching it to his class. And it really stuck in my, just a little, there's a little snippet that he reads from it, just stuck in my mind is something that I ought to really go back and look at because it's, it, it, I think as Rachel, I think as you both said, it's, it just feels for the kind of, um, the kind of intensity of prose and the sort of the, that in, intense interiority of somebody reflecting on their lives and, and, and behaving. There's, there's, there's almost a Bartleby the Scrivener thing about it. She's sort of just—it's—it's it's not a flashy novel. So I, I I picked it up and read it, and I, I read it for this as you did, and and in fact have read it now twice because I, I I just I just needed to to read it again because I 
I felt there was there was so there were so many joins in between the episodes that I hadn't really understood, and it's such a strong and and powerful atmosphere. It's it's not like any other American novel I've read. Very moving and very strange. Yeah. In a minute, we're going to appraise the blurb on the current Penguin Classic edition, <laughs> in keeping with the th- one of the themes of this show. But <laughs> with the theme of the show. But first, why don't we hear from John Goodman? That uh, John was just talking about there from an episode of Treme. Yeah, first season of Treme. Yeah. This book is really old. Yes, it is. But the awakening's human concerns are as relevant today as. They were at the end of the 19th century. Hey, at least it's short. <laughs> yeah, thank you, Professor Burnett. True. So I want you to take your time with it. Pay attention to the language itself, the ideas. Don't think in terms of a beginning and an end, because unlike some plot-driven entertainments, there is no closure in real life. Not really. You said that all books are about a problem that the protagonist has to solve. Or a quest. The protagonist is looking for something. So what's Edna looking for? Edna's journey is... She's looking for truth. Or some kind of peace. (laughs) There you go. That was giving me the fear, that clip. Can I just say... That 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 felt that felt like too many sixth form English lessons for me. <laughs> Not the teacher, the guess the the kind of oh, at least it's short. At least oh, it's short. The, anyway, the kids. Nah. well, I'm going to read the blurb out from the Penguin Classic Edition now, and um, I will ask you, Tim, to give it a give it your appraisal uh, as you chose. But is this is this representative of the book you love? Here we go. The groundbreaking depiction of a woman who dares to defy the expectations of society in the pursuit of her desire. That's the full line at the top. When Kate Chopin's classic was first published in 1899, charges of sordidness and immorality seemed to consign it into obscurity. (laughs) Consign it into. (laughs) And irreparably damage its author's reputation. But a century after her death, The Awakening is widely regarded as Kate Chopin's great achievement and a celebrated work of early feminist literature. Through careful, subtle changes of style, Chopin shows the transformation of Edna Pontellier, a young wife and mother who, with tragic consequences, refuses to be caged by married and domestic life and claims for herself moral and erotic freedom. C (laughs) minus. Thanks, Tim. I would agree with you. C minus. Rach? It seems a shame that they've put with tragic consequences because that's, you know. Spoilers. Spoilers, that, yeah. That comes up quite a lot in uh, Burb Your Enthusiasm, the very, very cavalier approach to the plots of books. I, I'm saying spoilers at this point We uh, to the listeners. We, we're going to have to discuss the ending of this novel we will, at some point. So, so put a helmet on because, we, because you know, we're, we're going to do it. So... Uh, so be warned. Yes, yeah, C minus, Tim. What, why, why, why? What's what's missing from that blurb? Well, I think I think it's a much bigger book than than that. You know, than what is described there. And I think there's, it's a sort of sensationalist description of the book. It's uh, you know to pinpoint scandal and desire, and I mean you know these things are part of it, and that she's pitting herself against the diktats of society. All that is part of this book but the awakening is the central part of the book and it's 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 just something that yeah. anybody can identify with and um you know certainly you could you could say there there's a there's a sort of i mean i can see why feminist critics would write about it as a, as a, as a text that would be important to them but i think that would be also reductive. I mean, you know, it's it's a it's a very serious book about a very basic human hunger for life. And I think um, you know, to talk about style and to talk about controversy and to just talk about feminism, I think is is reductive. Rach, what do you think? I'd agree with that, with what Tim is saying. And I but I also think that the emotional intensity of the book. Will, is what leads people to sensationalize it. Um, and obviously that's a neat, that's a quick way of 
getting across, but there's so much more in here. There's so much more about about actual consciousness, about the you know anybody's consciousness, yeah. be that female or male, um, or it's and it's about society. It's about it's about the particular kind of society of New Orleans, where at a point where the Creole kind of the the, the sort of there's always been that that sort of thing about you know good sturdy clean living Americans and slightly effete sort of Creole old families who are, you know, there's a, there's a beautiful thing that she refers to in one bit about the, about the thing about Creole culture being so sort of, it's, it's sort of seen as slightly kind of dying and, um, you know, so, so sort of hung up on beauty and, and um, courtliness and all that kind of stuff that uh, uh, there's a there's a proverb in there about old creoles don't die they just dry up and blow away it's that sort of mm. sense of a of a dying culture being contrasted with this sort of um you know this robust um presbyterian white i mean edna is originally from kentucky although she's married a she's married a creole man and she's living in creole society and she, there's something a there's something about that which is also part of her awakening because she's in this society where people are not high, that the rules are different. Um, and I, that, given that Kate Chopin herself was married to a, a, a Creole man, um, I think that's something that's obviously something that she's experienced directly. Mm. Um, and that's mm. that that's a whole subtext of the book that's going really, you know, really important. Don't you think it's part? It's one of those books that suffers from what I call cliff notes syndrome. Yeah, because it's been taught as a university text, and it's kind of been packaged into this. This is this. It's an. But actually, it means that you kind of read it for its sociological significance, yeah. and you don't read it for for actually what it really is, which is a kind of book about, uh, as Tim has said, as about somebody discovering extraordinary things about themselves and the potential within themselves. It doesn't often get said, but you know, she finds a house, she starts to paint, she does, she she transforms her life, she throws an amazing dinner party that becomes, you know, uh, famous throughout New Orleans. It it would be very easy not to read it if you if you read a, if you, if you read that blurb. Yeah, the blurb for me gets a. I agree with Tim. It gets a C minus for me for the simple reason that it makes it sound like bad art. It makes it sound like Atlas Shrugged or The Ragged Trousers of Philanthropists. It makes it sound like a novel that, 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 that is important because it represents an ideological Something. point of view, yeah. right? Yeah. Rather than that, that it breathes. And the thing I found so um, exciting about reading The Awakening is it didn't fit the exact category described by the blurb writer on that Penguin <laughs> Classic edition. It, yeah. it, it, what made it worth reading was all the stuff that is not encompassed in that blurb. Yeah. So in fact, I'm I'm downgrading it to a D, an F. I'm saying it's an F. Yeah. Well, I I think I remember a, a professor of literature from Kerry said to me, we were, you, "You you read the Goat Song by Dermot Healy in one of your previous episodes," mm. and he said one of the reasons why Dermot isn't really part of the canon as decided by the universities is because. Um, there are so many kind of isms in English departments now, post-colonialism and feminism, you know, very different, very many different things that are very easy ways to understand literature and works of the imagination don't necessarily fit. And in fact, they're a challenge to those things because it's, it's very easy to take, as you were describing, I mean, to take a book just for the sociological message that it has and then do a lecture on it and write a book about it. and and I think this is this would do a disservice to this book. It's it's much mm. larger than that. Come on, they're trying, aren't they? The blurb writer was trying. We don't wish to we don't wish to attribute bad faith to them. That would be unkind. Um, but but nevertheless, the richness of the text, which cannot be encompassed in in like a, a paragraph or two on the back cover. And Rachel, could you read us, please, um, a representative, if such thing exists section of this novel so people who haven't read it can get a sense of okay. the style in which it's written i'd like to read a bit from really quite early on in in the book where um edna and her husband and her children um they're all on holiday in grand isle which is a which is a beautiful island on the on the on the gulf of mexico 
it's about 50 miles from New Orleans, but in those days you'd have had to go over on a steamboat and it, you, it was a, you know, it's quite a long way. And the fathers, much like people do in the Hamptons now, the fathers go back into the city during the week and come back out into the island at weekends. And this is just a description of Mr. Pontellier, Edna's husband, who is four she, and she is 28, I think, in the novel. At some point, he's just said, oh, I'm, I'm off to clients. I'm off to the bar at the, the, at the hotel on the island. And this is when he comes home. It was 11 o'clock that night when Mr. Pontellier returned from Klein's hotel. He was in an excellent humour, in high spirits and very talkative. His entrance awoke his wife, who was in bed and fast asleep when he came in. He talked to her while he undressed, telling her anecdotes and bits of news and gossip that he'd gathered during the day. From his trousers' pockets, he took a fistful of crumpled banknotes and a good deal of silver coin, which he piled on the bureau indiscriminately with keys, knife, handkerchief, and whatever else happened to be in his pockets. She was overcome with sleep and answered him with little half-utterances. He thought it very discouraging that his wife, who was the sole object of his existence, evinced so little interest in things which concerned him and valued so little his conversation. Mr. Pontellier had forgotten the bonbons and peanuts that he'd promised the boys. Notwithstanding, he loved them very much and went into the adjoining room where they slept to take a look at them and make sure they were resting comfortably. The result of his investigation was far from satisfactory. He turned and shifted the youngsters about in bed. One of them began to kick and talk about a basket full of crabs. Mr. Pontellier returned to his wife for the information that Raoul had a high fever and needed looking after. He then lit a cigar and went and sat near the open door to smoke it. Mrs. Pontellier was quite sure that Raoul had no fever. He'd gone to bed perfectly well, she said, and nothing had ailed him all day. Mr. Pontellier was too well acquainted with fever symptoms to be mistaken. He assured her the child was consuming at that moment in the very next room. He reproached his wife with her inattention, her habitual neglect of the children. If it was not a mother's place to look after the children, whose on earth was it? He himself had his hands full with his brokerage business. He could not be in two places at once, making a living for his family on the street and staying at home to see that no harm befell them. He talked to him in a monotonous, insistent way. Mrs. Pontellier sprang out of bed and went to the next room. She soon came back and sat on the edge of the bed, leaning her head down on the pillow. She said nothing and refused to answer her husband when he questioned her. When his cigar was smoked out, he went to bed, and in half a minute he was fast asleep. Mrs. Pontellier by that time was thoroughly awake. She began to cry a little, wiped her eyes on the sleeve of her peignoir. Blowing out the candle which her husband had left burning, she slipped her feet into a pair of satin mules at the foot of the bed and went out onto the porch she sat down on the wicker chair and began to rock gently to and fro. It was then past midnight. The tears came so fast to Mrs. Pontellier's eyes that the damp sleeve of her peignoir no longer served to dry them. She was holding the back of her chair with one hand. Her loose sleeve had slipped almost to the shoulder of her uplifted arm. Turning, she thrust her face, streaming and wet, into the bend of her arm, and she went on crying there, not caring any longer to dry her face, her eyes, her arms. She could not have told why she was crying. Such experiences as the foregoing were not uncommon in her married life. They seemed never before to have weighed so much against the abundance of her husband's kindness and a uniform devotion which had come to be tacit and self-understood. An indescribable oppression which seemed to generate in some unfamiliar part of her consciousness filled her whole being with a vague anguish. That's the first sort of hint that we have that something is not all well in their marriage. And I, I just mm. love that description mm. because who hasn't had their husband come home a little pissed from being out <laughs> and stumbled into, <laughs> into I, your bedroom? I, 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 don't, I don't wish to stumble into a private grief, Rachel. So please, uh, it's like... <laughs> yeah, it's a very, very affecting piece, Rachel. Thank you. A tiny bit further on... Um, he sent, he's, he's back in New Orleans and he sends some sweets and bonbons and things for them all, which Edna is sharing around. It, and, and it just says, and the ladies selecting with dainty and discriminating fingers and a little greedily all declared that Mr. Pontellier was the best husband in the world. Mrs. Pontellier was forced to admit that she knew of none better. Yeah. <laughs> well, what do you, what do you all think of him? I wonder, you know, as a character, what? How do you read him? Leonce. Uh, yeah, 
what's interesting is I think he's he's married an American, he's a Creole man who's married an American woman, which can be read as um, him trying to become more Americanized. You know, he's a businessman. He's 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 very concerned about appearances. Um, I don't think he's a bad person. I think he just is completely puzzled by his wife. He feels a little bit like he might be a little bit based on Oscar, her husband. Yeah, exactly. Who was also a businessman and was also Creole background, and um, he was also French and had a sort of laissez-faire approach to the fact that she did things, that Kate Chopin did things her own way. He does, in the end, he does kind of let her move out of the house, but he has to cover it up, doesn't he, in a kind of, by saying, oh, it's, we're, 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 we're going to move to, a, we're doing it up, we're moving to a bigger house. That's why she's living on her own in the pigeon house, in this little house she rents. Tim, what do you think of him? Well, he would often be thought to represent a certain sort of stodginess and convention and authoritarianism, I suppose, against her. But I think he's nervous. You know, I think he feels her moving beyond him. And a lot of this uh, criticism of her about the children and uh, asking her to, you know, we must keep up appearances. You can't move into that little house because, you know, we have to be seen as prosperous. and you know, I think he's in a weak position and he knows it and he tries to use other means to cover it up. And I think it's most telling. There's a scene later on when she, I mean, the center, the centerpiece of the novel is this night when she hears this music and she goes swimming and she swims for the first time and she comes back and she stays on this hammock all night and she won't budge no matter how desperately he entreats her to come to bed. And she just says, I'm not going. I mean, nothing you will say will change my mind. And he meekly submits to that and he kind of comes out and he sits on the porch smoking cigars and drinking glasses of wine waiting for her because she's really in charge by this time because she's discovered something that he can't and he's doomed. I mean, there's nowhere, there's no way back. Once she wakes up like that, it's an awakening partly from the life she's made with him and he's gone. I mean, there's nothing he can do probably to win her back because he's not, he's not capable of doing that. So I think he's a very nervous man. I mean, he's a bit like Karenin or, you know, he's, uh, he, he insists on social proprieties, but mainly because he doesn't know how else to talk to her. I think the, I think the comparison with Anna Karenina is very interesting because it came to mind when I was reading it. And I, I was thinking, okay, so what? So this is reminding me of that novel, but what is the difference? And I wanted to ask you all, this is how one of the questions I have written here, to what extent is Edna Pontellier an individual and to what extent she, is she an every woman? I don't read Anna Karenina and think Anna is an every woman. I believe that she is an individual. Tolstoy has written an individual human being who happens to be a woman whose, whose situation within the patriarchy in Russia in that time leads to, no spoilers, unfortunate results. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but I wonder what the comparison, therefore, is with Edna in The Awakening. You know, to what extent is Kate Chopin intending to create put herself forward as a, a, a surrogate for women within patriarchy? And to what extent is she intending to create a pseudo-individual? Rachel, what do you think? It, what's interesting, okay, her experience of that, that vague oppression that she can't quite name is something that I think most women who are married at some point or are in a long-term relationship will have felt. So... On the one, of course, she's an individual, but she's also feeling things which are universal. I love one of the re relationships in the novel, which I like very much, is her relationship with with um, Madame Ratignol, who is a sort of ideal mother, um, who's this, you know, she's the she's the Creole wife of the of a of a pharmacist, and she's a she's she's described as beautiful and plump, and she's literally everything that a mother should be, and Edna at the beginning sort of half envies her, not really envies, but sort of thinks of her as a beautiful and graceful and perfect person. And then a little later in the book, after her awakening, 
she begins to feel pity for her that she's got she's never felt what she calls the delirium of life the the other mm. the other sort of side of things she's she can never lift above the dull contentment of of sort of domestic harmony and i so i think yes edna is an individual but she is also very importantly a woman who's suffering from the same kind of vague oppression that many women feel i agree is the author's intention to create an individual or a symptom you you compare it to anna karenina um you know that was written by a man and and as sympathetic as he is to anna karenina he also punishes her by throwing her under the the railway car and Spoilers. Um, <laughs> and uh you know madame bovary also meets her doom mm -hmm. you know um mm -hmm. i mean we know the ending of this book also but i think it's done in a very different way and i i think um, you know i would say that kate chopin she said she wasn't a feminist she wasn't even a suffragette you know she wasn't she wasn't doing this as a program. She never had that in mind. I don't think she was trying to make an every woman fighting against the patriarchy. I don't think that was her intention. I think she probably herself felt herself, woke up to a feeling of herself as an individual and the primacy of the individual. And she she was a mother, she was a wife, but um, I mean, there's a very interesting scene when she's with uh, Adele Ratignol where, she, where they're talking about children. Uh, and what the importance of children. And um, and she says to Adele Ratignol, who is like one of these mother women, as she calls them, for who, you know, their job is to adore their children and to fuss around their children. And their entire identity is to look after their husbands and their children. And she's not like that. And later in the book, she says, um, she says, well, I would give every, I, I would give my money to my children. I would give my life for my children, but I won't give my essence. And I thought that was, you know, that was a radical thing to say. It's a very unpopular mm. thing to say. Mm. I'm assuming she felt like that. It's 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 so real the expression of that, and so so specific and so particular. I think she is very much a character, and I don't think she's in the service of an ideology. I would say. There's a really interesting thing that um, her biographer uh, Emily Toth says um, that she. When she first kind of read it, like a lot of people, she thought it was, you know, a very sad story of a failed rom romance that ended in suicide. After years of sort of researching and writing the, the, the definitive biography of, of Kate Chopin, published in 1990, I think, uh, and getting to the kind of age that Kate Chopin was when she, when she wrote the book, she started to think about it very differently. She says, in my own middle age, I started looking back at the awakening and finding a very different story. Now Edna's seeking romance seems to me a silly quest, especially because the man she's pursuing is obviously, to me today, gay. Now I think the book is really an anti-romance in which none of the men have a clue, while Edna, a motherless child, figures everything mm. out during chats with her girlfriends. Mm. After all, it's with Adele, the mother woman, that Edna shares the subtle bond which we call sympathy, which we might as well call love. As for the ending, I have to concede that Edna goes out for a long swim, but now I'm much more aware than we never see her drown. I think she just keeps on stroking. She then goes on, I finally got it right, I think. Her scandalous romance, I believe now, was an unimportant fling in the real drama of her life, which is Chopin's life, the growth of a smart, realistic, woman-centered writer. So I, I, it's almost like there is a kind of this book is is the book that enables her to express all of the stuff that she has has thought about, but can't express any other way other than through art. She can't, you know, you can't you can't just write that, you can't that write that down. This book is not a manifesto. I think that's a much better answer than mine, John. That's a much better answer. Don't give in to the patriarchy. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Um, I'd like to ask you a question, all, all of you a question. Maybe I'll start with Rachel on this one. This seems to me, to me in The, the, the Awakening, a really interesting um, contrast between the languorous setting of New Orleans and its environ, sunburnt, you know, heat, and the forward propulsion in the narrative. 
It's almost set up like a crime novel, this book. These short little chapters which offer pieces of evidence about the inevitable conclusion. You know, it's the, the sense that you know where you know something bad is coming, and you're being given short examples of locations or suspects or acts that lead to that conclusion. Not not her demise, but her awakening. And I wondered how Kate Chopin gets away with that. <laughs> how it's a really good trick to pull off. How can a book be languid yet driven remorselessly forward? Gosh, that's that's a really good question, Andy. I think I think it's partly to do with the character of Edna herself. All the physical descriptions of her, of this sort of statuesque, han- she's handsome rather than beautiful. She's fit. She's lean. She can, you know, once she's learnt to swim, she can swim. You know, she's sort of, she is, she herself is, is as a, as a physical being as well as a, as an intellectual being, is set against the languorousness and all that. And I, I think there's a, there's a really brilliant description of Alse Arabin, who is the man who she actually commits adultery with obviously Kate Chopin writing this but it's very close point of view from his thoughts he's detected what is described as the latent sensuality of Edna which unfolds under his delicate sense of her nature's requirements I love that her nature's requirements Mm. and this is Mm. unfolding the description of the unfolding is like a torpid torrid sensitive blossom now that's a the torpid, mm. torrid, sensitive blossom is Lovely. very sort of, you know, opening magnolias in, you know, torrid yeah, heat yeah. and all that kind of thing. But that's a misunderstanding, really, of who Edna is yes. and what her awakening actually is. Her awakening is, you know, as everyone's rightly pointed out, the sex isn't really the point. It's a symptom and it's a means, but it's not the point. Do you agree with that, Tim? Uh, yeah, I do. I mean, uh, funny, that description of a flower, she also used it. She, she wrote a a story called the storm which um is 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 about an act of adultery in which everyone winds up happy um it's quite a clever little story but but and it's she describes this the the, the act itself i mean minus not you know not every part of the anatomy is included but um it's much more explicit than she could have got away with and she never offered it for publication in her lifetime it was published later but the flower is um, is very present <laughs> as a representative of of this sensuality and this openness and this receptivity that happens in the sexual act. But I, but it, no, I think I think she's waking up spiritually, aesthetically. Uh, her perceptions, uh, body is part of it. It's, they're all part of of a general awakening, I think, and you know. I think mostly people concentrated on the sexual aspect. Even people still do now, you know, that 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 that's the center of it somehow, but it's only part of it, I would say. I mean, when she hears Mademoiselle Reese play, that's as much of an awakening as yeah, having sex with Al Urban, you know, I think. Um, I, I'm going to uh, read um, very brief chapter six in its entirety because it's relevant to what we're talking about now, relevant to the awakening and the and itself and what we think might be meant by that term within the framework of this book. Edna Pontellier could not have told why, wishing to go to the beach with Robert. She should, in the first place, have declined, and in the second place, have followed in obedience to one of the two contradictory impulses which impelled her. A certain light was beginning to dawn dimly within her, the light which, showing the way, forbids it. At that early period, it served but to bewilder her. It moved her to dreams, to thoughtfulness, to the shadowy anguish which had overcome her at the midnight when she had abandoned herself to tears. In short, Mrs. Pontellier was beginning to realise her position in the universe as a human being and to recognise her relations as an individual to the world within her and about her. 
This may seem like a ponderous weight of wisdom to descend upon the soul of a young woman of 28, perhaps more wisdom than the Holy Ghost is usually pleased to vouchsafe to any woman. But the beginning of things, of a world especially, is necessarily vague, tangled, chaotic, and exceedingly disturbing. How few of us ever emerge from such beginning. How many souls perish in its tumult. The voice of the sea is seductive, never ceasing, whispering, clamouring, murmuring, inviting the soul to wander for a spell in abysses of solitude, to lose itself in mazes of inward contemplation. The voice of the sea speaks to the soul. The touch of the sea is sensuous, enfolding the body in its soft, close embrace. That's lovely. <laughs> well, also, of course, the, the, the seduction of the sea is one that she cannot resist by the end of the book. That same sea which liberates her, mm. does it liberate her again or does it close her down? You know, discuss. Well, I think it's interesting that this this awakening is described as a kind of almost it's a sensation. I mean, she she doesn't really analyze it. She doesn't say where it came from. It's it's a sensation that she experienced, and I think you know a lot of novelists would have tried to analyze it and tried to say where it comes from and what you know, what in her background made her what opened the door. It's just it's a sensation, and paired with this sensation is an equally unexplained sensation of misery. I mean, there's a, there's a passage that says, there were days when she was very happy without knowing why. She was happy to be alive and breathing when her whole being seemed to be one with the sunlight, the color, the odors, the luxuriant warmth of some perfect Southern day. She liked them to wander alone into strange and unfamiliar places. She discovered many a sunny, sleepy corner fashioned to dream in and she found it good to dream and to be alone and unmolested. There were days when she was unhappy, she did not know why, when it did not seem worthwhile to be glad or sorry, to be alive or dead, when life appeared to her like a grotesque pandemonium and humanity like worms struggling blindly towards inevitable annihilation. She could not work on such a day, nor weave fancies to stir her pulses and warm her blood. And I think it's interesting that she doesn't try to psychoanalyze this woman or do anything like that. This is an intriguing thing. I mean, you don't normally see writers resisting, you know, analysis and just giving something so important purely as a sensation. Yeah. And that kind of en enigmatic quality, though, runs right through to the end of the book because... That, I mean, the, the, as you say, Andy, she in, in the end, the embrace of the sea does is too strong for her, but it isn't, it isn't clear, really clear. I mean, it's ambiguous. The ending, right? I, I, re I read it as ambiguous. I mean, we assume that she's gone off swimming and doesn't come back, but we don't kind of know that. It's almost like a transfiguration at the end that she's moved into some sort of symbolic. Maybe that's kind of going back to your question about is she, what is, what does she represent? Is it's kind of that sort of return to the womb. Is, is it an emotional act or a dutiful one? Yeah. Is she recognising her compromised position in society and the effect on her family? Or is she, is she reacting? I, I don't think there's a single answer to this. That's one of the wonderful no, no. things about the novel, right? It contains all these interpretations. Um, you know, is she, is she acting spontaneously? Or is, is spontaneity not possible within the framework that Kate Chopin is describing? Yes and no. <laughs> but that's wonderful. That's what literature is, right? It can it it, it, it it exists in three dimensions, not one. As long now, certainly for the last 30 years, that this book has been kind of active, maybe longer, 40 years, it's been actively discussed. That the, the novel's ending is ambiguous. John Goodman has a, a really good take on it from uh, Treme. She was blindly following whatever impulse moved her, as if she had placed herself in alien hands for direction and freed her soul of responsibility. Okay, Ben. 
I'm just trying to put this book into perspective. Is The Awakening the first women's lib novel or something? I wouldn't. No, to label it as such would be to ghettoize a great work. Well, what happens to Edna was, I thought it was really depressing. Oh, no, no. This isn't a feminist manifesto. This book is it's not about Edna's emancipation from male authority. And the ending of the book is not the end. It is a transition, a rejection of disappointment and failure. The farther Edna walks away from the constraints of society and convention, the more free she becomes. She's not moving toward the darkness. She's embracing spiritual liberation. I'm gonna let y'all go early today. Go out and read, it's a glorious day. <laughs> uh, well, that's a very good place to leave uh, Edna swimming out towards the horizon and offer our thanks to Tim and to Rachel for setting the novel free from literary preconceptions and restoring perhaps some of its original wildness. To Nikki Birch for making us sound like we're all at the same dinner party and to Unbound for the boxes of bonbons and luscious friandies. You can download all 175 previous episodes, plus follow links, clips and suggestions for further reading by visiting our website, backlisted.fm. And we're always pleased if you contact us on Twitter and Facebook and now in sound and pictures on Instagram too. You can show your love directly by supporting our Patreon at www.patreon.com forward slash backlisted. What do you get for your money? Well, all patrons get to hear backlisted episodes early and advertising free. And for even less than Edna's flutter on the horses, those who subscribe to the Lock Listener level get two extra podcasts every month. It's called Lock Listed. Think of it as our very own New Orleans salon, tucked away in a jasmine-filled courtyard where we three repair to smoke cigars, drink strong cocktails, and entertain one another with stories taken from the books, films, and music we've enjoyed in the previous fortnight. It is exactly like that. That is a factually accurate description of what Lock Listed is like. Lock Listeners also get to hear their names read out on the show as a mark of our thanks and appreciation. And this week's new patrons include... Caroline Findlay, Rosie Huss, Marina Selly, Nancy B. Pearson, Mavanwi Lloyd-Jones. Thank you. Thank you so much for your generosity and to all our patrons. Uh, huge thanks for enabling us to continue to do this. We love it. We enjoy it. And uh, we're pleased you love it and enjoy it too. So thank you. Rachel, what do you think? Is there something, is there some message to uh, humanity or the cosmos that you would like to put on the Apollo space mission out into the, the Voyager, sorry, the Voyager space mission out into the universe to say, to tell people about the Awakening by Kate Chopin that we didn't cover in the discussion? The only thing, other thing I would like to say is just read this book because it is bloody wonderful. And it repays rereading, and it's just, it is just, it's just one of, one of the best things ever. I think we all strongly agree with that sentiment, don't we? I mean, uh, I we do. Thank we you, do. Tim. Well, thanks, Tim, for choosing it. Yeah, Beautiful. and thanks, Rachel, for illuminating it and and um, discussing it with us. It's been it's been great. We'll see you in a fortnight for our Christmas or fortnight or so or so for our uh, Christmas episode, which I think it will be with you on Christmas that morning itself. As is traditional. Thanks, Tim. Thanks, Rachel. Thanks, John Thanks, and Nikki. Guys. See you next time, everyone. See you in a fortnight. Bye, guys. Thank you. Thank you. Bye.